electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now at last call, throwing deep, three media giants planning a big shakeup to the way you watch sports. We're going to have the breaking developments. Going green, bleeding red. Ford revealing a staggering new cost of its EV push. So why is the stock soaring right now? A border brawl, bipartisan deal with billions of dollars at stake. Teeters on collapse. You're going to hear from Senator Ted Cruz. Shaking under the stress, a warning from Janet Yellen on empty offices, helping send regional banks tumbling. Plus... An exclusive CNBC investigation into utilities, wildfires, and what investors may be missing. All that and more over the hour. So as always, belly up and buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. We've got all that and more coming up across the hour. But first up, Snap cracked. The parent company of Snapchat crushing investors right now. That is not a misprint. Snapchat right now wiping out more than a third of its entire value. Let's start with this. Julia Borston is here to explain what exactly happened and what is going on, Julia. Well, Brian, Snap reported a revenue miss and guided to a much larger loss in the first quarter than analysts had anticipated, guiding to a range of a loss between 55 and 95 million dollars. The consensus was for a first quarter loss of 22 million dollars. Snap warning that the onset of the conflict in the Middle East was a headwind to growth of approximately two percentage points in the fourth quarter. And CEO Evan Spiegel on the call just explaining the company's move on Monday yesterday to cut 10 percent of its workforce. Now, before those cuts, Snap's workforce was already down 20 percent from its peak in the third quarter of 2022. It's always you know, painful and difficult to make these sorts of changes with our team. We're really motivated by trying to move faster. You know, last uh, last year, towards the end of the year, we made a, a rather large change to our product team, uh, you know, and, and restructured the team uh, to just drive a lot more accountability and focus. And in doing so, we re- removed a number uh, of layers of management. We saw the impact that that had just in terms of, of the clarity and, and focus. Snap's cost-cutting contributed to better-than-expected fourth-quarter earnings. The company also saying it's benefiting from the growth of small and medium-sized advertisers, as well as the strength of its newer direct response platform. But Snap's plummeting stock this evening stands in sharp contrast to Meta, which, when it reported its earnings last week, also stressed its focus on efficiency but gave a much more bullish outlook. And like Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Spiegel also talked a lot about AI and its value boosting Snapchat Plus, which the company says now has hit an annualized revenue run rate of $249 million. I'll be talking about all of this and more in an exclusive interview with Snap CEO Evan Spiegel. That's in Money Movers tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Brian? That is a big one because that stock is big time down. Julia Borston, thank you. All right, so for more on this and tech broadly, let's bring in Dan Niles. He is the Satori Fund founder and fund manager. 
Uh, Dan, I, we didn't bring you on or ask you on to talk about Snapchat. We want to go broader than that, but I, how could I not ask you about it? I mean, 32% drop in one of the most used social media platforms in America? Well, I think it goes to something we'll talk about later, which is tech is sort of traded as a monolith and it's had nothing to do with earnings for the last two years. Two years ago, Magnificent Seven were down 46% as a group. Last year, they were up 111% as a group, even though estimates changed widely. You had Meta estimates go up 90% for this fourth quarter. Meanwhile, you had Tesla estimates go down 50% for the fourth quarter just reported, but Tesla stock doubled anyway. Meta's, of course, nearly tripled, but they all went in a group. This year, and you're seeing this with Snap, you've had a very big difference, right? Meta beat and raised. They did 40 billion in revenues in the quarter. Snap is much smaller at 2 billion. Snap should have been able to get through all these issues. Instead, they missed and lowered. And then you have Google in between, which missed on YouTube and search, and their cloud did better. And you're seeing that in the stock prices, where Meta's up about 30% for the year, year to date. Google's up a couple of percent. Mm -hmm. And when it opens for trading tomorrow, Snap will be down about 30%. And that's kind of the way it should be. And so this earnings season, whether you're talking Tesla down 25% or so, Apple down a couple of percent, Apple lowered again for the fourth time, you're starting to see earnings matter to stock prices where they really didn't matter as much last year when everything went up. Yeah, I mean, Snap was an $80 stock sort of at the peak of the pandemic, fell down to eight. It's actually up from where it used to be, even with that 32% drop. By the way, a lot of executives there still, you know, selling stock and, and, and getting rich. That, that aside, Snapchat's, to your point, Dan, kind of its own thing. What is your macro view on big tech? Because everybody just wants to talk about the Magnificent Seven over and over again. Well, and I kind of look at it as it's not the Magnificent Seven anymore. It's the Fantastic Four. Okay. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is Tesla's estimates came down all of last year. The stock doubled. Apple's estimates, I know the stock went up 48%, but they went down all last year. And by the way, when they reported the most recent quarter, they went down again. But Apple's stock was up 48% last year. Both Tesla and Apple are down this year to start. Um, and so those two, I think you have to throw out because Tesla, unfortunately, is dealing with um, higher financing costs to buy cars. EV market's getting a, a lot more competition. Margins are going down. And you've got a 60 PE on that stock, which makes it really hard on a risk reward basis. With Apple, the valuations in the high 20s, the S&P trades at about 20 times. Mm -hmm. They guided to the March quarter being revenues the same as it was three years ago. You want to go pay high 20 multiple? Be my guest. I'd much rather go buy Meta trading yeah. at a mid-20s multiple with mid-teens growth. And with upside to numbers versus downside for the last year in Apple's estimates. Given, given so, quickly, we got to go, Dan, but give, get quickly, uh, given what you just said about Apple's sales and Apple's valuation, do you think it's possible that we have seen the high for Apple stock? Well, you know, the one thing I realized is there are periods of time where nobody cares and the multiple just keeps expanding because they view it. Some point in the future, it's going to be great. Something will bail them out. Vision Pro is the, the latest thing that people are pinning their hopes on. But yeah, I think there's a really good possibility this is the peak because Apple has competition from Huawei, 
which is back producing phones. Mm -hmm. They have competition from foldables and they have competition from AI on smartphones that Samsung's already producing. This isn't a China issue. This is a competition issue for Apple. And I know people want to believe the former, but the problem is it's the latter. The Fantastic Four, not just a great Marvel superhero group, by the way, the thing from, you know, Human Torch, et cetera, but now a new group of stocks, Dan Niles, Tory Fund. Thank you. Thank you. All right, up next, a streaming game changer, literally a game changer, the huge shakeup for sports planned by three media giants The breaking developments next. NetCredit is here to say yes. Because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, let's get down to tomorrow's news tonight. And up now, a streaming collaboration maybe for the ages. Disney's ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery are planning to launch a joint sports streaming service later on this year. The platform does not currently have a name, does not have a price, but it will be owned by a newly formed company and will have its own leadership team. Subscribers will be able to bundle the new service with Disney Plus, Hulu, and Max. Shares of Warner Brothers Discovery and Foxing a nice pop after hours. Shares for Disney are slightly down. Joining us now for more is Gabelli Fund's co-CIO of Value, Chris Morangi. Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, I want to thanks for coming on because we want to hit this from an investor's perspective, right? Like what to do. How do you read this? Well, you know, you call this a game changer, and I think this is a very important moment for traditional media. You know, we've talked about the importance of scale in this business. And one way to achieve scale is through consolidation, i.e. mergers. Another way is through collaboration and confederation. Uh, John Malone, who is very important to this industry and a mentor to Warner Brothers, Dave Zaslav, has talked about this for a long time. Uh, and when you're competing with the likes of Amazon and Netflix and Google and others, you need scale. And I think this gives those companies a path forward to be an effective competitor and to save money in doing it. Do you have any more details on this? Because I'm still trying to figure out how this might work, given that they've all got TV channels, they've all got streaming services, and now they're going to, I guess, I dare I say, bundle together for this. Well, clearly there's a lot TBD here. Um, you know, it's a, a skeleton agreement among the details, among the questions we have are, how is this going to be capitalized? How are the fun, uh, flow of funds going to move? Uh, will this entity be a bidder for sports rights itself, including the NBA, which comes up next year? Um, does this open a path to further collaboration on those streaming services? This is going to be bundled with uh, with other stre- streaming services from mm-hmm. each company, but can they do more? And where, what happens to NBC and CBS, who are notably absent uh, from this joint venture? That's a good question, and uh, might know some people to ask about that, at least on my side. Are, are you an investor in Disney, News Corp, or Warner Brothers Discovery? 
So, so we're involved in all of them. One of our favorites has been uh, of the of the group uh, that you're talking about has been Warner Brothers Discovery. We've been owners of Discovery for a long time, and it was under the control of uh, of John Malone. Uh, big fans of Dave Zaslav and what he's doing. I think he has uh, the right vision for the future of media, which is to do things cost effectively, to make services that customers want, uh, and to be open to um, this kind of collaboration. Zazla, by the way, former executive here at CNBC, eons and eons ago. Um, yeah, we're going to leave it there. Chris, thanks for popping on late. Kind of big breaking news there, so we appreciate you jumping on. Chris, thank you. Thank you. All right, and a programming note, maybe this guy knows more about it. Disney CEO Bob Iger will be on Closing Bell Overtime tomorrow talking all things Disney earnings, CNBC exclusive. I'm sure this issue is going to come up. In the meantime, Ford reporting pretty strong fourth quarter numbers. They topped expectations and forecasted better than expected results for the year. Shares of Ford are getting a nice pop on the report, up more than 6%. But one issue with Ford does remain big losses over its electric car and truck group. Ford reported a full-year loss of $4.7 billion, a loss Ford expects to increase this year. But Ford says it does remain committed to the future growth in the EV market. In the meantime... While Detroit's EV losses continue, Toyota is cashing in on a booming hybrid sales trend. Toyota forecasting a record $30.3 billion in profit. And that sent shares of Toyota up nearly 8% today. So as EV demand does remain strong in pockets of the country, mostly in wealthy coastal areas, how does the business overall look going forward? Joining us now is celebrity motor car owner Tom Maoli. He owns several New Jersey car dealerships, including a Ford dealership, and you've been blunt on the topic. By the way, you are based in a wealthy coastal state, so you, yes. you should be the prime market, right? You should be the yes. prime market for these buyers, Correct. And, and you've been blunt about it. What are you seeing now, Tom? Good to see you, Brian. Thanks for having me on. But, you know, listen, Ford lost $523 million this quarter. They're, they're, they're uh, projecting a 4 to $5 billion loss. EV sales are down 11% across the board. And if you read their earnings report, they say the Maki is collapsing. It's down 51%. You know, I'm not so sure what the Biden administration is looking at, but this thing is a failure. And Toyota, Toyota is booming. Look at their stock. They're making uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, I have a Lexus dealership, which is owned by Toyota. You know, hybrids are flying off the shelf. Gas cars and hybrids are flying off the shelves. EVs cannot sell. The, the consumer does not want them. And, you know, it's the, it's the age-old story. We could talk about it over and over again. Well, Tom, and yeah, Tom, but sales overall are still growing. The national well, sales listen, numbers are up 30%. Yeah, listen, 30% when you're selling, you know, when you're selling, when, when it's only 6% of the marketplace, that's, you know, it's easy to be up 30%. You know, that they, they're throwing percentage numbers around, not volume numbers. And, you know, look at Tesla. Tesla's taking it on the head. They're dropping prices. They're, the, the margins are dropping like a rocket ship. And, you know, Toyota just came out and they trimmed EV uh, production and sales for next year. And they're going to, they said that they're going to continue to produce hybrids and gas cars. And, you know, Mercedes Benz, BMW, they're all doing the same thing. You know, it's growing, but it's not growing rapidly. Infrastructure's not there. Consumers yeah. are afraid of charging, you know, and it's too costly. And, you know, I don't know what the Biden administration is doing with this mandate, but at the end of the day, the consumer needs to be able to spend their dollars. Well, you know, they go out, they work for it, they pay their taxes, and they need to be able to spend their dollars where they want to spend. Uh, let's not blame it on the White House because it's states too, right? It's New Jersey, it's our state. State, it's yeah, California. There are others. Those will probably get rolled back. Politicians say stuff and then they can change Correct. it all the time. What worries me and people, you know, listen, I've been critical of this because yeah. I've owned 
electric cars. I've driven many, yeah. many electric cars, and I'm a 30-year car racer. I, I know cars. And, 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 and tell me about what, yeah. what bothers me, what worries me is that when I look on a cars.com, any one of these used yeah. car sites, right, yeah. the number of low-mileage EVs that are popping up, uh, just go yeah. people can look for themselves, tells yes. me that a lot of people are buying a car, driving it for a couple of months, and then yes. putting it up for sale. Some cars they may have waited a year for, that's weird. Correct, but guess what? Those EV used car values are down 40% when they roll them off the showroom floor. There's no residual value. The consumer doesn't want to buy a new one, never mind a used one, because no one knows the battery life in these vehicles. So would you buy a used electric vehicle? They're losing, consumers are losing 40%. They're coming into the dealerships trying to trade these cars in, and we won't even take them because we can't get rid of them. We can't get rid of the new ones, never, which, which have warranties, never mind the used ones. No one wants them. It's, it, it's a political blunder. And honestly, the administration and the states have to roll their mandates back and give this thing time to evolve. And if it doesn't, if it evolves, it evolves. And if it doesn't evolve, it doesn't evolve. Hybrids are yeah. where it's at. You know, and we can continue to pound the table. You know, the, the amount of energy and, and carbon reduction that's saved in hybrids is actually greater than it in is. It is. So I think they need they need to hire some experts in the White House because really that's they're, they're that's dead. what Toyota, that's what Toyota said. You know, you could care yeah. about the environment and go hybrid because the, the number of minerals to build one battery electric vehicle, according to Toyota, can build 90 hybrids. By the way, we got to let you go, Tom. My buddy's got a hybrid F-150. He filled up the other day, sent me a picture of the dash. 756 mile range. Not bad. It's amazing. My guess is he'll probably have to go to the bathroom at some point. Tom, thank you. All right. Still Absolutely. Ahead. Good to see you. All right. The real numbers behind the border crisis that you may not hear anywhere else. We'll talk about that and AI regulation with Senator Ted Cruz next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about three big money topics on Capitol Hill. Wars, the border crisis, and AI regulation. Today, the president urged Congress to pass a big spending plan around Ukraine, Israel, and the border. The 370-page bill would spend over $100 billion and is broken down like this. $60 billion for Ukraine, $20 billion for border security and immigration, $14 billion for Israel, $10 billion humanitarian aid, and about $12 billion more on other issues. On the military side, it would provide a few billion to the U.S. Navy and U.S. Army and Air Force and something called defense-wide provisions of $34.2 billion, which caught our eye because the proposed bill said the money would be appropriated to, quote, respond to the situations in Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Taiwan part especially caught our eye. We'll get more on that in a moment. And today, the president spoke about this military and border funding bill and called out the other party. Bottom line is this bipartisan bill is a win for America because it makes important fixes to our broken immigration system. And it's the toughest, fairest law that's ever been proposed relative to the border. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine. 
to make it clear to the American people that you work for them, not for anyone else. Bottom line, it's getting pretty testy over the border in Washington. So let's talk about this big money story, along with the growing need to regulate the billion dollar world of artificial intelligence. For that, we are joined again by Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Senator Cruz, thank you very much for joining us. I want to keep it really down the CNBC lane because people see this is a political issue. But when you have the mayors of New York City, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Denver effectively say we can't afford this migrant crisis and we'll have to cut essential services. This is a huge economic story as well, is it not? Yeah, it it absolutely is. What is happening at our southern border is an utter and complete catastrophe, and it is a humanitarian catastrophe. It is a national security catastrophe. It's a public safety catastrophe. And you are right. You are seeing blue state governors and big blue city mayors describing it as an emergency and a disaster. Eric Adams, the very liberal Democrat mayor of New York, has said that it is a crisis and he has said illegal immigration is destroying New York City. And I have to say, he was talking there about 110,000 illegal immigrants and the impact that's having on New York City. Texas and the rest of the southern border have seen during the last three years of Biden's presidency 9.6 million illegal immigrants. If 110,000 is destroying New York City, what the hell do you think 9.6 million are doing to Texas and the rest of the southern border? But, uh, Senator, a lot of those those folks, uh, the migrants, are expelled, correct? They are are sent back to to the country they came from. No, no, no. Those are 9.6 million that have come in. The the reason we have this crisis is because Biden, his first week in office, understand this crisis is man-made. Joe Biden inherited the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. Under President Trump, we had made enormous progress in securing the border. In the very first week in office, Joe Biden and the Democrats deliberately broke the border. They did three things. Number one, Biden immediately halted construction of the border wall. Number two, he reinstated the disastrous policy of catch and release. And number three, he withdrew from the incredibly successful Remain in Mexico agreement. The consequence of that, Brian, we went from the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years to the highest rate in the history of our nation. The month of December, we saw in one month over 300,000 illegal immigrants in a single month, more than 10,000 a day. That is the most illegal immigrants in a single month Mm -hmm. in the history of America. And it's man-made by Joe Biden. It's his deliberate decision to cause this crisis. Yeah, I've posted the data. It's all publicly available if anybody wants to push back. And it wasn't just Trump, by the way. The Obama administration... Obama-Biden administration did a pretty good job as well. We averaged, I went back over the last decade, we averaged about 500,000 encounters per year. That jumped to 1.9 million in 2021, 3.2 million last year, and on pace maybe for 4 million this year. But here's the thing. This bill, as I've heard and read, and I read the entire bill myself, which hopefully every member of Congress will also Mm -hmm. do, Mm -hmm. seems like it would take years to, to actually enact, because I don't know where they're going to get the asylum officers and justices at the border to claim to, to make these claims. Well, listen, I, I think this bill is, is a very bad bill. And, and the good news is 
this bill is not going to pass. It, it is dead on arrival. The Speaker of the House already made clear it won't pass the House. And I'll tell you in the Senate, it, it, it's not going to tomorrow we have a cloture vote. It's not going to clear that vote either. And the reason it's going to fail is because Chuck Schumer and the Democrats refuse to make meaningful concessions to actually secure the border. And so this bill is written would codify Joe Biden's open borders. It would put into law catch and release, which is what has caused this crisis. It would normalize 5,000 illegal immigrants a day, which works out to about 1.8 million illegal immigrants a year, or over the three years of Joe Biden, nearly 6 million illegal immigrants. That, that is a disastrous yeah. outcome. It also would give work permits to illegal immigrants. It would provide taxpayer-funded attorneys to illegal immigrants. And I'll tell you one provision that as a Texan I find deeply troubling. It, it, it goes out of the way to hurt the state of Texas by saying all litigation challenging what the administration is doing has to be filed in district court in the District of Columbia. Yeah. Texas can't sue in federal courts in Texas. They got to come to a very liberal D.C. court. It's a bad bill, which is why it's not going to pass. I was in Texas this past weekend, Senator, and usually people want to talk to me about NVIDIA or the Federal Reserve and all anybody yeah. wanted yeah. to bring up was this issue, but, but can you answer, whenever I post something, I get a lot of smart people, they, they ask the same question over and over again, and I don't know the answer, I'm sure you do. Why can't, why can't these bills be separate? Why, why is everything lumped into the one bill? Is there some sort of procedural aspect of the Senate that I simply just do not understand? Well, there's not. And the reason initially that the two were combined is that Republicans together in the Senate said, listen, we're not going to fund yet more billions of dollars for Ukraine until we do something about the crisis on our southern border. Put simply, we're not going to invest further in securing Ukraine's border until we secure America's border. That was a very reasonable demand. That's what led to this negotiation. But the thing that messed it up is Chuck Schumer and the Democrats refused to concede on anything that would actually secure the border. And so, for example, the House of Representatives has passed a bill called H.R. 2, which mm -hmm. is a serious, tough border security bill that would actually solve the problem. The House passed it. In the Senate, I've introduced H.R. 2. I'm the lead sponsor in the Senate for it. When the negotiations started, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats said, that's off the table yeah. because we don't want to actually secure the border. And what's infuriating? is Biden doesn't need any legislation to pass to secure the border. He created this problem unilaterally, and he could literally solve it tomorrow by reversing the three decisions I mentioned, building yeah. the wall, ending catch and release, and reinstating the Remain in Mexico agreement. Joe Biden and the Democrats yeah. don't want to do that. I know that the hardworking men and women of the Border Patrol have confiscated enough fentanyl to kill six billion people just in one year. Senator, yes. I can't let yes. you go. I want to ask you about a new bill that you're putting forward that would block the SEC from forcing financial firms to use artificial intelligence to disclose if their AI puts the firm's interest ahead of the clients. Now, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, says the new rule will protect investors because AI could make incorrect assumptions or, as I said, be used to steer people toward that firm's own investment products. That seems like a reasonable proposal. Why do you feel it's wrong? Well, because that's not actually what the proposed rule says. It is an incredibly broad proposed rule from the SEC that is a power grab by the SEC that, that would give the SEC enormous authority to regulate 
virtually any use of technology and investing. Look, millions of investors are enjoying things like, like being able to invest online, invest on their phone, invest free of commissions, and, and all of that innovation would be deterred by this. The, the, the SEC is talking about this in terms of predictive analytics and, and artificial intelligence, but the terms of the rule are much broader. I'll give you an example. This is actually the example Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, used. He said that he personally hates the color green, and he has a twin brother, apparently, and, and, and he said when he was a kid, his mom dressed him in green and dressed his twin brother in red, and so he hates green. And he said, well, you know, AI could figure out that I hate green and they could not put my app in the color green. Like, are you serious? This is literally the chairman of the SEC explaining why a federal agency needs to regulate what color the app yeah. is on your phone. This rule and this power would, would give the SEC massive power and it would deter innovation. We want innovation and investing to help consumers be able to invest more effectively. G Gensler may have just been making a quip there. Who knows? But Senator Ted Cruz, we <laughs> we I know you just came from a vote. We appreciate you coming on CNBC. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, folks, and as always, here on Last Call on CNBC, we welcome all sides of issues and debates. So if any Democratic senators, Senator Chuck Schumer or others, would like to join us to talk about the other side of that bill, you are welcome anytime on this show and this network to discuss it. Open invitation. All right, coming up, how utilities and wildfire risk pose a threat to lives and also to investors. It's a CNBC investigation, months in the making, and it's coming up next. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. And it is time for a CNBC exclusive investigation. It has been nearly six months since the devastating and deadly wildfires in Maui, Hawaii. That fire, along with PG&E's massive fire in 2018, are raising more fears that utility companies are not properly assessing risks that wildfires post their operations. And also that investors in these companies are doing the same. Hawaiian Electric is facing allegations that its infrastructure caused the wildfires that burned Lahaina, Maui, and left at least 100 people dead. The stock has collapsed, as bankruptcy is a real risk, and Hawaiian Electric is not alone. Experts say these wildfire risks have not been priced into many utility companies' stocks. Here is our report. Michelle Glogovac remembers November 8th, 2018. It completely went up in flames. It was the day her childhood home and much of Paradise, California, were destroyed in a wildfire caused by utility giant PG&E's infrastructure. For it to have moved so quickly, so fast, it, it was unheard of. And so nobody was prepared for that. She was just running and terrified and praying. For Brent Jones, that day was August 8th, 2023, the day his aunt, Lori Allen, ran through a burning field to try to escape the deadly Lahaina wildfire. The smoke was just extremely heavy and in, obviously in her lungs and she was breathing it in and, and burned. Hawaii officials are fearing the worst as the sun comes up in Maui. Your Aunt Lori was the 98th person to pass away from the Lahaina fire. But I would imagine that her 53 days in the hospital with 70% with of her body burned were pretty difficult. There were a lot of days that were just really very difficult. She was in extreme amounts of pain. The cause of Hawaii's wildfire is yet to be determined, but a lawsuit filed by Maui County alleges that Hawaiian Electric inexcusably kept their power lines energized during the forecasted high fire danger conditions. 
A separate investor lawsuit alleges the company made misleading statements about its wildfire prevention and safety protocols, calling them inadequate. Hawaiian Electric is not alone. A CNBC investigation finds some utility companies are not properly assessing the risks climate change poses to their operations. Utilities are not always well set up to respond with agility to new risks that emerge. And I think that's part of the problem. Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University, studies wildfire mitigation plans. He says Hawaiian Electric lacked basic risk mitigation efforts, like a power shutoff plan, which is when a utility intentionally cuts off electricity when certain conditions, like strong winds, occur to prevent power lines sparking a fire. Hawaiian Electric has publicly stated it did not turn off power when high winds occurred, which caused its power lines to fall and start a morning fire on August 8th. It said this fire was contained and that a second afternoon fire later that same day, the cause of which is still unknown, is what devastated Lahaina. I think there's a failure to fully understand the risk. Are you investors properly discounting the utility stocks risk? Not right now. We don't see that kind of discounting happen, except in cases where the utility has already caused a fire. Hawaiian Electric, which trades as HE on the New York Stock Exchange, saw its shares crash after the fire. PG&E's stock price also plummeted after a 2017 fire and dropped again after the one in 2018 that destroyed Glogovac's childhood home. These fires resulted in the company filing for bankruptcy in 2019 and settling a $13.5 billion lawsuit alleging its infrastructure was to blame. Hawaiian Electric declined an on-camera interview with CNBC, but in a statement, a spokesperson said Hawaiian Electric's power lines had been de-energized for more than six hours when the afternoon fire that spread to Lahaina broke out. The company also has been executing on a wildfire mitigation and grid resilience program for years and was evaluating wildfire defense strategies, including whether to implement a public safety power shutoff program as a tool of last resort. We've reduced our wildfire risk. Despite coming on CNBC last quarter, PG&E also declined an interview for this story, but in a statement wrote that since 2017, PG&E has reduced wildfire risk from its equipment by 94% through measures like burying power lines, vegetation management, and implementing its public safety power shutoff program to de-energize power lines. Your utility is taking some of that money and using it to fund their political machine. David Pomerantz is the executive director of the Energy and Policy Institute, a watchdog for utility companies, which is funded by philanthropic foundations that support climate actions, environmental conservation, and environmental justice. He says the failure to assess and mitigate risk boils down to one thing, money. Like all investor-owned companies, it's all about the bottom line. Utilities are trying to boost earnings. Pomerantz says utility companies make money through capital expenditures, which involve building new infrastructure like putting power lines underground. The cost of this, plus an additional percentage of profit determined by regulators, all get baked into customers' bills over time. On the other hand, operational expenses, things like trimming trees or clearing grass near power lines, don't make money for the companies and their shareholders. Pomerantz says this is why utilities might be less motivated to spend on expenses, because the more they spend on operational costs, the more their profits shrink. Do utilities spend too much time and money on capital expenditures, new projects, versus operating expenditures? They generally do. And, you know, that is due to this internal deep, deep bias they have because 
Capital expenditures earns them profits. Operating expenditures do not. Now, Glogovac's parents in Paradise, California, were fortunate. They had fire insurance on their home and they were able to rebuild. But many victims are still waiting on payouts from a trust created to compensate PG&E fire victims. And it gets worse. Right now, under federal law, any money that has been paid out can be taxed, meaning some victims could end up with far less than expected or even have a surprise tax bill. But there is some hope. A proposed law, bipartisan, that would make this money tax exempt. The bill has passed the House and is awaiting a vote in the Senate before it can get signed into law. We will have more on this story going forward. All right, coming up, one of America's biggest banks crushed the culprit. It just might be empty buildings. The story you got to hear ahead. Black-owned businesses secured a little over $2 billion in venture capital in 2022. That's a lot of money, but it represents less than 1% of the more than $200 billion pool of venture capital. Many agree this means there's more opportunity to invest in founders of color. Celebrating Black Heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. Bad situation apparently getting worse for one New York community bank corp. Moody's downgrading its credit rating on the bank to junk status a short time ago. This follows a 22% dive for the stock today. The stock in free fall since reporting larger than expected losses from real estate lending. And maybe some concerning words from one Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We are monitoring current banking stresses carefully. Commercial real estate is an area that um, we've long been aware um, could create financial stability risks or um, losses in the banking system. Now, despite the name New York Community Bank, if you're not familiar, maybe you're on the West Coast, NYCB is a big bank. They got 420 branches. They're the seventh largest originator of residential mortgages in America and the fifth biggest subservicer of mortgage loans. They were once valued at $25.5 billion. They're now down nearly 90% from their peak, under or right around $3 billion, and they have more than $115 billion in assets. So what exactly what is going on here? Joining us now with more is New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan. Lydia, thanks for coming on. I, listen, for people out there in Dallas or Des Moines or Denver, I think New York Community Bank, it's not a couple of banks on a street corner. New York Community Bank is one of the biggest regional banks in America. Yeah, and the fact that they're struggling, I think, raises the question of how much worse is it going to be? Is this going to impact every single regional bank in the country? So just to kind of touch on this, what they are signaling is pretty depressing. And the fact that you have Janet Yellen, basically the Treasury Secretary, today acknowledging that there are causes for concern is enough to spook investors to think, well, if she's acknowledging there's cause for concern, how much worse is it than what we know? And so just to reiterate, their stock price has fallen to the lowest level of this century. Um, They reported losses in the fourth quarter of 2023 uh, of about 250 million and signaling that there could be more loan losses. They're putting money aside to try and prepare for that. And I think what also spooked uh, analysts is that on the call, you had executives not necessarily giving people a lot of comfort. You know, the hope was that, okay, well, this was a bad quarter, but maybe it'll get better. And they really weren't providing any sort of guidance or clarity of what investors could expect. 
And that's because there are huge questions about what is going to happen in the commercial real estate space. In the next about three years or so, we're seeing $2.2 trillion worth of commercial real estate debt coming due. And so that is the big question. How much of that debt is going to be defaulted on? How much losses are these banks going to bear? And these regional banks have a disproportionate exposure to that debt. Yeah, we've been I've been talking about this for a long time. I was out in San Francisco actually doing the piece that we just saw. Talked to some people there, talked to some people here. There will be buildings that are fine. I want to make that very clear. If you're a new building, you're environmentally sound, you got all these good lead, you know, environmental grades, you're going to probably be able to refinance, get new tenants. It's these older buildings, Lydia, in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and some other places that that are many of them probably have negative value. And that's sitting on the books of a lot of these banks. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, this was an issue just a year ago with Silicon Valley Bank because things weren't valued the way that they should be. And so that's the question here. How much are these buildings actually worth? And we just don't know at this point. Of course, what we're hearing from Jerome Powell from Janie Ellen is not comforting to investors. Jerome Powell basically acknowledging earlier this week we could see a few regional banks fail. And then Janet Yellen, likewise, saying we're trying to manage this this situation, but it's extremely stressful. Yeah. And words, particularly from Janet Yellen and the Treasury Secretary, I mean, they matter. And you you just kind of utter that even sort of blase sentence. And this is what we have. I I think one one sort of not a glimmer of hope, I would say, but a lot of investors and economists, when they look at this, they say, they don't think it's going to be a sort of Lehman yeah. moment or a yeah. Silicon Valley Bank moment. Where yeah, things just and, and other banks have, have held up better. Yeah, they've held up better. Few, yeah, and L- really Lydia, we got to go. Hours. I'm sorry, I'm, getting, I'm literally they're going to they're like cut off the lights in the studio. Lydia Moynihan, thank you very much. All right, coming up, learning to beat the market in eighth grade. That's next. Thinking. Back to school. We all remember the top subjects like math or English or history, but one charter school in Brooklyn is offering a new course to eighth graders aiming to build the next generation of financial investors and tomorrow in the ultimate real world experience. Students in the class are going to be ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange and I guess get to see, hey, Jim Cramer and the Sots crew. Joining us now from Brooklyn Dreams is a treasurer and board member and creator of the program, Michael Light, as well as eighth grade star student Andres Paquette, who wants to go by Andy. Welcome, Michael. And Thank Andy. you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Bob. So you are an ex-Wall Streeter. Correct. Michael. Correct. Why did you decide to do this and what do you teach? Well, first of all, I'm very minds like Andy's. I'm very passionate about this. We're dealing the inequities in our society. The only way you can deal with it is through education and through teaching young people financial literacy and how to invest. And that's really what the course is. It's based on I based it off a book by Joel Greenblatt, the little book that beat the market. And we also go into um, I've talked about the Treasury, about the Fed. They understand they, they picked out a stock. Andy, what stock are you following? Um, I'm following Apple, but it's not really doing well so far. It, it hasn't done a whole lot this year, has it, Andy? Which and why did you pick? Why did you? And so tell us what are one of the one or two most important things, Andy, that you have learned just as an eighth grader, that will help you in your financial journey as you grow old and hopefully get rich? Um, well, one of, the, one of the main things is learning how to track stocks and learning how to invest in certain companies mm-hmm. depending on what, what you want to invest in and how much money you want to earn and how to con- control your risk factor. 
when it comes to investing. Now, you sound smarter than a lot of the adults that come he, on he this is, network. And, and the <laughs> other thing I just want to, I'd like to stress the other part is, is capitalism, that today many Gen Zs are, seem to think that socialism is a better system. I think they've been brainwashed to an extent. So we're trying to, I'm not trying to brainwash them. They want to no, be analytical thinkers. Trying to teach them. But I'm saying to them, all capitalism, capitalism is, is the private ownership of industry and the economy. Yeah. And they, that, want you to, they want you to own it. I mean, what, what do you think, Andy, when you look at, at a stock? When, what, do you, what do you learn is the sort of the first thing that you need to think about when you decide, I'm going to follow Apple or I'm going to follow Amazon? Um, the first thing you need to look at is how much sales they're having or how much or what they're going to release in the future. I decided to track Apple because I assumed with a new phone that, dro- that dropped recently that it would do well, but surprisingly it hasn't. Well, you, you probably know the phone world better than I do. They've got to have something that's going to make people, make people go buy it, right? So what, is, what are some of the risk measures that Michael is teaching you? Well, one of the risk measures is tracking how much you're going to invest how like you have to he taught us that six percent is the main thing you want to invest to mom control your risk factor Mm -hmm. because you don't lose too much but you also don't gain so if you don't lose then if you don't lose then there's no risk that was the risk-free rate i explained to him that's typically the risk-free rate and that's what what, what you're looking at and and with apple I, I explained to the how Peter Lynch used to invest. Yeah. Find something you like because yeah. they're young people. I use and this, trends, right? and so therefore, exactly. I might, not me exactly. personally. I I'm, yes. Andy, we're not allowed to own stocks here at CNBC. <laughs> Do you know that? We can only own index funds e- and, e- and mutual funds yeah, and yeah. stuff like that through our 401k. What are you most excited about at the NYSE? Um, well, seeing the great Jim Cramer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm most excited about ringing the bell. It's going to be awesome. And we have a studio set right below that. Hopefully right. they'll, they'll go up to them and say, hey, I was on last call last night. Can we, can we take some pictures? Definitely. I can't speak for them, but that'd be great. Are you having fun with it, though, Andy? Yes. That's it. You're having fun. You're learning. It's going to benefit you immensely. And Michael Light, you are doing great work on that. Thank you for giving I it back. I appreciate it. And thank you. Thanks for having us. And Brooklyn Always. Dreams is a great school. Thank you, Andy, for coming in. Good luck. We'll talk to you soon. That's it for Last Call. Tonight, Shark Tank is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.